Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about genetic and environmental influences in colon cancer with Dr. Caroline Johnson. Dr. Johnson is Assistant Professor of Epidemiology in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the Yale School of Public Health, and Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. Maybe, Carolyn, you can start off by telling us a little bit about your research. I use a technology called metabolomics to investigate sex-specific differences in metabolism that affect colon cancer development, progression, and even response to therapeutics. So particularly in my research, um, I'm interested in examining um, metabolism in patients that develop tumors that occur on the right side of the colon. So that is the area of the colon between um, the appendix and, and slightly up from there in the cecum and ascending colon because those patients have the poorest survival. And what we've seen in the literature is actually female patients have um, much higher incidence of tumors that occur in this region of the colon. So we've been using my technology, uh, metabolomics, to get a better understanding of the metabolism of these tumors. So maybe we can stop there for a second and just kind of dig a little bit deeper into what exactly metabolomics is and, and how that works. Yeah, so uh, metabolomics is a study of all the small molecules that are present within a sample. So we can take a biological sample um, from a patient, such as a blood sample, a urine sample, or even a tumor tissue, and we can analyze it in an agnostic manner. So we examine basically all the different uh, levels of all the small molecules that might be within that sample. So we do this in a whole or an omics fashion, and this is similar to genomics or transcriptomics. So small molecules are basically metabolites that are within our bodies that come from the processing of things like dietary products, um, and they produce vital components that are needed for our bodies for different biological processes such as growth and healing, immune responses, energy, and even sleep. So metabolomic analysis can also really show us about the metabolism of an individual. And it can, again, also show us um, metabolism of things like environmental chemicals and drugs as well within an individual. And reveal metabolites that could be produced by the bacteria or even the microbiome within an individual. And this technology is particularly important for um, cancer because um, we know that metabolites can affect how our tumor grows as tumor cells need nutrients and energy, and the tumors themselves produce metabolites. So metabolomics can really provide us great insight into how an individual produces metabolites and how this might propagate tumor growth as well. So basically, you're kind of looking at all of these metabolites to gain some insight into these colon cancers. Tell us what sample you use to, to look at these metabolites. One can imagine that there may be many options that you would have, whether it's looking at the stool or whether it's looking at tumor tissue or whether it's looking at blood. Um, so what exactly do you do to try to gain this insight? Uh, that's a really good 
Good question. So we can we can basically take anything. We can take a blood sample um, or a stool sample or a tumor tissue, and we can obtain these from patients and we can extract all the different metabolites out of these biological samples. And what we end up is sort of a mixture of anywhere from maybe 3,000 up to, you know, 10 to 20,000 different molecules that could be present within this sample. Um, within my research so far, we have primarily examined tumor tissues from patients. So we, um, with collaborations with both Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and also the Yale Cancer Center, we obtained over 200 tumor tissues from patients where these tumors had been obtained during surgery. And we were able to analyze these tissues to examine which metabolites were present and how they were different between different patients. So how they were different between both women and men and from patients with right-sided colorectal cancer and also from uh, tumors that occurred in other regions of the colon as well. So, but if all of these patients had cancer and one would imagine that um, you're really looking at the metabolomic profile of tumors in these patients, is that different than what you would expect in normal colon? So are there some metabolites that you would expect only in tumors versus uh, in healthy tissue? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question too. So we know that tumor um, well, tumors have a very sort of increased rapid growth. So we tend to see metabolites that are linked to energy metabolism and sort of making those or encouraging those building blocks to be built to build new cells. So, you know, there's a lot of um, what they call metabolic rewiring that happens within a tumor compared to um, a normal tissue. Um, but within my research, we were really interested in, lo in looking at the tumors themselves and how they differed between male and female patients. Because what is quite interesting about, you know, colorectal cancer and uh, all, all cancers, they tend to have a higher incidence in male patients. But what we see is that in the right side of the colon, women tend to have this higher incidence. So we wanted to see what was different metabolically about these tumors that occur specifically in, in women with right-sided colorectal cancer. And what we saw was that they had this very different metabolic profile where they tended to um, generate energy differently and they used one metabolite, um, well, they produced one metabolite called asparagine that seemed to be much higher within this set of patients than compared to male patients that had right-sided colon cancer and also patients that had tumors in the other side of the colon. So we've really gone after this metabolic pathway to understand more about this side of metabolism and potentially how it could in the future be potentially targeted for perhaps a precision medicine approach for this group of patients. Hmm. So, so that's interesting that, that women have a, a metabolite that um, processes energy differently than men. Um, did you look at, I mean, I just wonder when I think about asparagine, I, I start thinking about, um, you know, different um, uh, um, uh, 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 nucleic acids and, uh, and amino acids that 
um, form the building blocks of uh, of cells, um, and, and whether these could be manipulated um, based on dietary factors, for example. So. Um, when we think about um, how cells use energy, um, sometimes that may be mediated in part by um, people's dietary intake. Did you look at that as a potential difference in male versus female patients? Um, well, within our cohort, we didn't have information on diet, but that's very much something that would be useful to have something like um, a food frequency questionnaire, which is sometimes collected in different um, for different biobanks and in different cohorts. Yes, exactly like the diet, I think, is, is really important here. Um, but I think asparagine does come from many, many different dietary sources, and it actually has been seen as well, um, you know, to be produced potentially or metabolized by the microbiome as well. And it can be produced internally through your own biochemical processing of of other metabolites um, through an, an enzyme called asparagine synthetase. So biologically, it can come from your internal processing, but it can also come from dietary sources and it can come from microbial processing as well. So um, as with many metabolites that you know are present within in tumors and also present within the colon, we always have to take into account all these different biological sources of where they can come from so we can either, you know, manipulate them and try and sort of um, potentially, you know, reduce the effects of the disease or improve therapeutic response. Yeah, it seems to be so multifactorial when you think about where all of these metabolites can come from and all of the different processes that could be going on, um, both within normal cells as well as within cancer cells, um, which raises the question then, you know, do women normally have more of this metabolite even outside of their colon cancers? Um, I think in this context, what we've begun to see is that the asparagine might be increased in these patients because these tumors may be what we call nutrient deplete. Um, and this is something that we still have to look into, so we can't really confirm this, but just from our metabolomic studies, it seems to be indicating this. And this is maybe due to differences in um, blood supply to the tumor or something else, some you know less oxygen that, that might be getting to the tumor. And when we look at the other processes that are going on within these um, samples, you know, we see that the the generation of other energy metabolites is is different as well, which could be indicating that there could be something particular about how these tumors might be growing in this area of the colon. So um, at the moment, we don't have normal colon tissues from from individuals, but that's something that we do want to look at to see if just in sort of the um, patients that do not have colon cancer, if their um, colon tissues have these, you know, different metabolites that could be different between um, men and women and, and maybe could, you know, affect the development of these tumors. Yeah, you, you kind of wonder as well whether this is cause or effect. So in other words, um, is it that you had a tumor which was growing, which then caused this altered met metabolomic profile, 
Or was it that you had some other processes that were going on that altered your metabolomic profile, which then spurred on the cancer? Did you gain any insight into that question? Um, I think it's probably more of the latter. Um, we see that asparagine, you know, is produced internally, as I mentioned, through this enzyme um, asparagine synthetase. And this enzyme is controlled somewhat by another gene, a, a mutation of a gene, a mutant KRAS. So it could be that these um, these tumors have this, this oncogene and it could be then affecting these metabolites. So it could be an effect that we're seeing, but it, it's probably a combination of many things. So it includes this potential mutation um, to this gene, but also it could be the way that the tumor is growing, as I mentioned, within the, the colon as well. And altogether, all these different processes are, are causing this um, effect of this increased asparagine that we're seeing to help to help propagate the tumor when it might be under these, these stress conditions where it's not able to obtain nutrients in a normal fashion. So um, this, I think this is what could be happening. And also, as I mentioned as well, this combination of the microbiome present as well within the colon that could be um, affecting how this metabolite is being processed. Well, you know, it's it's such an interesting puzzle um, to kind of think about uh, how metabolomics works uh, along with genetic mutations and so on um, when we think about colon cancer. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about genetic and environmental influences in colon cancer with my guest, Dr. Carolyn Johnson. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Carolyn Johnson. We're talking about genetic and environmental influences in colon cancer, and right before the break, Carolyn was telling us about her studies looking at metabolomics, that is to say, the study of different metabolites looking at gender differences in right-sided colon cancer. So, Carolyn, I wanted to dig into that a little bit more because we started to talk about whether, you know, these metabolomic changes are what drives the colon cancer or whether the colon cancer is what drives the metabolomic changes. And you had mentioned that um, the metabolomic changes may be in part related to mutations in KRAS, but we know that KRAS is an oncogene that may uh, spur on cancers as well. I wonder whether these two processes are independent of each other. That is to say, KRAS 
causes metabolomic changes and also causes separately uh, tumor development or whether these are interrelated. Do you have any sense on that? I think, you know, they're interrelated and the findings that we have seen, you know, linking mutant KRAS and asparagine have been seen in other cancers as well. Um, so, you know, the mutant KRAS is very common in pancreatic cancers and there is a, there's a clinical trial right now, actually, that I saw yesterday for um, targeting asparagine by using a drug called asparaginase um, along with other first-line chemotherapeutics. Um, so we do know that the mutant KRAS does regulate other genes and signaling pathways that does affect asparagine production. So I think it, it's probably a case of mutant KRAS affecting the asparagine levels. Um, but of course, as I mentioned before, asparagine can be uh, modulated by other sources such as you know, from the diet and also from from the microbiome. And we have analyzed the microbiome from some of the tumors from the right-sided patients, so from both from men and women. And we have seen that there is some microbiota that are correlated with asparagine levels only in, in the female patients. So we do believe there is a, you know, a multifactorial effect on asparagine production that could be itself propagating the tumors as well by giving them more um, nutrients. We know that asparagine can um, increase the uptake of other amino acids and can affect other processes such as um, even polyamine metabolite production or autophagy and other processes like that. So um, I believe this is a, you know, a very wide combined effect. And really the technology metabolomics has allowed us to get an insight into this because we can not only, you know, analyze asparagine, we can analyze all the other metabolites that could be affected by asparagine levels as well, or could be affected by mutant KRAS. So it really is, you know, a wider scope and um, a magnifying glass really into looking more into these pathways that are regulated by both genes and metabolites. Have you found a, a difference in asparagine between men and women who are KRAS negative? That is to say, they don't have a KRAS mutation. I, I wonder whether um, these two are directly linked. So, for example, women may have more KRAS mutations, and therefore m you may be seeing these um, metabolomic differences, or whether these are really separate processes altogether. Um, so, we haven't looked at um, specifically. Um, the KRAS wild type at the moment. Um, what we have done is we've we've looked at survival actually. So we we there's many different um, publicly available data sources that we can look at to look at gene expression and also patient survival. So we looked at um, mutant KRAS and we looked at asparagine synthetase and we saw that patients with these with these genes had much poorer survival if they were female and they had a right-sided tumor. So we compared, you know, the, the KRAS mutant to the KRAS wild type. And it was a, again and again in these different resources, we saw that it was always the, the female patients with right-sided colon cancer that had the poorer survival 
And we looked at asparagine levels within our own cohort and we looked at the survival data because our tumors were, were collected in the 1990s. So we were able to follow up with survival of the patients. And we saw that it was, again, only the women and we've right-sided tumors that had poor survival and increased risk of recurrence if they had high asparagine levels. Hmm. Interesting. And, and did you did you look at whether these asparagine levels were higher in tumors that were larger versus smaller? Or was it if you looked at two tumors that were identical in terms of their size and their grade and the level of invasion and their lymph node status and all of the other markers that we look at for prognosis, was asparagine independently associated with prognosis? Um, we didn't have the size of the tumors to sort of understand that, but that's a very good question. Um, what we did was we we had a very small amount of tumor um, from each patient, but it was the same size for, for each patient, the, the biopsy that we had. So we compared between those biopsy sizes, but we did um, take into account things like the stage of the, the patient. Um, and we saw across the board that it was stage one, stage two, and three that had High levels of asparagine um, in in the in the women with right-sided colon cancer, but for um, men, they didn't have these high levels of asparagine at these different stages. So it tended to be mostly um, in the in the women again. And so, when you looked at prognosis, did you look at and found that asparagine was correlated with prognosis? Was that independent of their stage at presentation? Yes, yes. So it's um, it seems to be, um, you know, independent of stage. It's asparagine levels within the tumors. So what we really want to do next is we want to obtain um, blood samples from patients to see if we can measure asparagine levels and if this could be potentially a, a biomarker as well for these patients. So that's something that we want to validate in a larger cohort. Um, right. So that's something we're looking into right now to collect these samples. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about cause versus effect, it really gets to kind of your next steps, right? So so if we think that uh, asparagine is really an effect, in other words, you have a tumor uh, that uh, then causes asparagine levels uh, to go up such that those asparagine levels are predictive of prognosis, certainly thinking about can we use this as a biomarker, um, especially if it can be found in something simple uh, like a blood sample or a stool sample, um, might be helpful. On the other hand, if we think about it being more of a cause, that is to say, if you have high levels of asparagine, um, that then sets off a cascade that leads to um, worse tumors um, and worse prognosis, then the concept might shift not only to be a biomarker, but to really think about, is this a therapeutic target? Um, so, so where where do you kind of come down uh, on on your next steps with regards to that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, we're currently designing studies to look at the effect of asparagine on tumor growth. So, giving you know, providing a different um, cell line and animal models um, asparagine to see if it does propagate tumor growth. Um, there's been, there was a study actually out in nature a couple of years ago where they, in a different uh, cancer model, in a breast cancer model, they fed mice 
um, asparagine in their diet, and they saw that it actually caused the primary tumor to metastasize. So there's been a number of studies that have looked into um, asparagine and have seen that it can propagate tumor growth. So we had um, we have a study that's been funded by the American Cancer Society, where we will be looking at the effect of both the gene that produces asparagine, so asparagine synthetase. We've developed some cell lines that where we have the knockout of of this gene, um, and we will we want to be. Um, uh, giving this uh, sort of injection this into mice and also to feed them asparagine to see if it will actually um, affect tumor growth. So it, it could be um, hopefully in the in the future down the line we can sort of test to see if any of the asparagine reducing drugs such as asparaginase could be used as a therapeutic um, for to reduce asparagine levels in in patient, colon cancer patients potentially. You know, it's so interesting when you talk about that mouse study in breast cancer where feeding mice asparagine led to increased metastasis. One of the obvious questions I'm sure all of our listeners want to know is um, what foods out there are high in asparagine? Um, yeah, that's that's something we're looking into as well. Um, you know, as with any sort of food source, there are many different components within within a, you know, within a vegetable or within, you know, anything that you eat. So it's really about trying to, um, I think if it was going to be given, you know, as, as a therapeutic, um, you know, I, I don't know if diet is really the best way to, to approach it. Um, it could be better to potentially try and reduce those asparagine levels. Exactly. And that's what I mean is that using it as a, as a, preventative measures. So uh, encouraging people to eat less foods that are high in asparagine, which brings us to the question, which foods are those? Um, yeah, I, I, which foods? Yeah. At the moment, we don't really um, know which foods have high asparagine levels. Um, that's something that we, you know, would need to look into because, you know, each food product does contain many different um, amino acids and other products. And it tends to be some food products that may have high asparagine levels have other beneficial properties, you know. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really um, interesting point. But I, I think that perhaps targeting, yeah, from a maybe a therapeutic um, standpoint from using something like asparaginase might perhaps be more effective. Um, but definitely the diet would be something um, that would be useful to look into for these patients. Yeah, because I, I kind of wonder whether um, women just naturally gravitate towards eating foods that are higher in asparagine and or um, whether they process those differently such that they end up with higher levels of asparagine versus men. Um, and so understanding um, how they metabolize those foods um, might might play a role. But, but you did kind of comment um, uh, that in looking at the enzymes that break down asparagine and also those that increase asparagine, did you find a difference between men and women in, in terms of their natural um, enzymes, um, even outside of, of the cancer patient? Um, we haven't looked at the expression levels of those, but that's that's a really interesting point. Um, we do know that 
that asparagine synthetase is associated with with poorer survival if it's a higher expression only in in women with um, bright-sided colorectal cancer. But I think also, you know, having a look more deeply at the the microbiome because we know that there are many um, species within the microbiome that can also metabolize asparagine. This could be, you know, another um, therapeutic um, avenue that could be explored as well. And I think having a, a you know a more in-depth look at the microbiome that could be present within the stool sample or within the tissue samples within um, patients is also a really important area to examine. Yeah. You know, the other question that comes to mind is, while your research has really focused on the differences between men and women, um, one wonders, especially when you think about the potential role for asparagine in mediating uh, prognosis. I'm going back to that um, mouse study that you said was published in Nature a few years ago in the breast cancer model, whether even if you look at men uh, with colon cancers, whether men with higher levels of asparagine do worse than men with lower levels of asparagine. Have you looked at that? Um, we have, and it doesn't seem to be the case. So it seems to be sort of what we've seen actually is the opposite way round. that if, you, if a male patient has higher levels of asparagine, they tend to do better. So it's really, yeah, perplexing. So, um, Interesting. You know, and it's really fascinating. So it's something that, you know, we're, we're looking into within my lab um, in different models. So um, hopefully we'll get, you know, better insight into this in the, in the next couple of years or so. Dr. Caroline Johnson is Assistant Professor of Epidemiology in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the Yale School of Public Health. If you have questions, the address is canceranswersatyale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.